Hi, and welcome to season five of Business Book Talk. Hope you're going to enjoy this new season. I'm really excited about it. I'm sure you will really enjoy some of the books that we have planned. So let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody, it's Bob here, and I've got Roy Osing on the line. We're going to be chatting about his amazing book, Be Different or Be Dead. And no, it's not a book about zombies. <laughs> we just had a great little uh, preamble chat, and uh, I can tell already it's going to be a lot of fun. This is the second edition. When did the first edition come out? Yeah, the first edition came out in in '09, and um, was uh, very fortunate that uh, people really liked it. And so uh, I updated it literally 12 months later. And so yeah, here we sit in the second edition. I'm almost tempted to think there's got to be a third and a fourth coming, but uh, I just haven't got around to it. Yeah, well, that's the whole thing. And you know, we actually ha- we're chatting about how consuming business books is very very difficult these days because people just don't have as much time and shorter books seem to be uh more palatable and you've actually published several books uh that were was it pdf or just a digital format well they're they're ebooks that's that's sitting on all of the e-retailers so um it's you know you can you can buy it in digital format um i've got um, in addition to this one, I've written five other ones in ebook format that basically take a slice of "Be Different or Be Dead" and and sort of expands it more granularity, um, and it's in bite-sized chunks. So it's like around a hundred ebook pages, which is you know very consumable to people in a very short period of time. It's interesting because we are. It's almost like overproliferation of. Uh ebooks and there's a lot of garbage out there which it's a bit of a bummer uh so it's so wonderful to run into a book that's got this much depth and then like you're saying you've got breakout versions of it in uh in ebooks so uh what we'll do is at the end of the show we'll chat a little bit more about that but for you when you you know because this is a tome and and i don't often say that because this is like we've got 337 pages uh <laughs> relatively large uh book and uh there's so much content it's basically you've got it at four sections is it five sections yeah five sections uh, and you basically cover everything it's like it's all here it's basically five books in one yeah, you know, and, and I struggled with that. As a matter of fact, um, when when I had the manuscript ready to go, there was actually another section to it, and it was called Be Different You, uh, How to Stand Out and Power Up Your Career, which I've subsequently made into an ebook. Um, I had to take that away just, just because of the size of the book, just so much content. And if I made a mistake in retrospect, it was probably um, – having it too long. If I if I redo it, I'll probably do it in a paperback format and I'm just going to condense it. Um, you're right. It's like drinking through a fire hose in a way. There's so much there. Uh, but it was funny, you know, when I was writing it, I just had to stream of consciousness and it was just coming and coming and coming. I, I, my, my editors were so upset with me because <laughs> they wanted to change stuff and blah, blah, blah. And I said, no, you can't touch Roy's voice. If you touch Roy's voice, it will not be Roy's book. And so, you know, <laughs> you're talking about conflict management. <laughs> it was amazing. Well, you know, it, it does have a nice um, 
flow to it. And it's definitely a personal style book. It's not uh, academic in any stretch of the imagination. It really has a... Um, from the streets or, or from the uh, from the boardroom feel to it where it's like, guys, this is it. This is what you do. This is the reality. And uh, I found that quite refreshing as well. Well, I mean, that was actually by design. I mean, when I set out, I got a, I call it eating my own dog food, okay? I mean, I, I can preach be different to other people, but I better be practicing it myself. And so when I thought about the book, I said, you know, uh, the book has got to be an expression of, of my work which quite frankly is different than most because it's fundamentally based on what I successfully did in my career. As you point out, I mean, it's, it's heavy on practicality and lighter on theory for a very, very specific reason. I mean, I got so, so frustrated running very large businesses, asking for help, and all I could get from people was what I should do. Okay, very, very light on how to do it. And so my idea setting out in the very beginning was to create a compendium of cool ideas that worked with with the value proposition that said, if you try this, I guarantee it will work if you stick to it. And, And the proof of that is I did it. And so I separate myself from, quote, the advisor and authorship herd because the stuff that I've got in there, I've done. And very few can claim that. I mean, I've run business, small businesses, large businesses, a help not for profit, I mean, all over the map. And, and it works, so there's plenty of evidence there. Um, plus, it's fun, you know, that's the other thing. If people can't have a great experience doing what they're doing, they won't do it. And so the book, hopefully, Um, is attractive to people physically. You know, there's a lot of white spaces in the book for a very specific reason. For God's sakes, write in it, highlight in it, you know, earmark the pages. I tried to put call outs in the pages so that it will jump out at people what the the key learnings are. And of course, there's quick hits at the end of every chapter and learning points at at, at every section, the end of every section, just to keep reiterating some of the basic precepts. And people tell me, that that was useful, that that's different than the way most books are written and laid out. Well, for sure. It, it's almost like uh, it's an armchair experience. You've, you know, come on down, sit down, and I'm going to explain to you how it's done. And then that's why I feel it's got this voice to it, because you are repeating yourself. And if you're having a conversation, that person's being earnest, they will tend to repeat themselves on key points. Uh because they know that's the core. That is the core value, and then from everything else builds from that core. When did you first decide that uh, be different is the calling charge for you? Like, was it was it earlier in your life? Was it when you first got into business? What was it? Well, yeah, interesting question. I think I've had this uh, this virus <laughs> for. <laughs> A long time because as, as for as long as or far back as I can recall, the the stuff that I tended to do um, in business, I always asked the question, how would others do this, and how can I kind of like separate myself from that momentum? Um, and it began, I think, as a career thing where I was always observing and always trying new stuff, and every time I did something. Um, people would say, oh, wow, I mean, that's that's different. That's quite, quite creative. 
And so I, I kind of got this thing that says, okay, I think this whole theme is going to be kind of like my calling card throughout my career. And I stayed with it. I mean, my brand in business ended up to be around marketing and customer service. And I have zero formal education in either one. But what I did is I discovered that it was relevant and important to the business of the day, which in those days was telecom going from a monopoly into a competitive world. I concluded that those were very, very important dimensions and people in the business lacked the currency. So I went out and I learned it, built the currency and ended up as eventually chief marketing officer and a president of a billion dollar a year business. I mean, is that is that consistent? Is that because of be different? Uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe the mathematicians would have fun doing cause and effect, but nobody can convince me that it, it was not a major driving force in my performance in my life because it was. And hell, Bob, I, I practice be different. I'm a grandfather of four and I'm a different papa and I practice it every day with these kids. And it it's just, oh, it just works. It's so refreshing. I just find it empowering, you know, in life itself to actually have this sort of approach. Yeah, well, it's, you know, every now and again, and, you know, I'm introduced to all sorts of amazing people through this show. And the guys that are on fire, like yourself, that get it, they're, they believe in what they believe, number one. They love what they do, and they love their philosophy, and they can't wait to get up in the morning because they're so full of life. And they tend to be very, very giving people. That, that kind of rings true, and I, I think that's what I find interesting about the book more than anything else is I'm having a lot of these moments. So it's like, oh, yeah, and yeah, I totally get that, and it's a reaffirming book for people that are like you, um, but for other people that see that uh, having tremendous value, as in when I'm saying different, I'm using the, I would use the word creative, creative strategy, looking at life in a creative way where everything is an option and a crisis is an opportunity to look amazing. It's a way of, of living life in a very, very full way. And you just seem to have tons and tons of energy come to you if you live your life that way. There's no question about it. In fact, you know, the interesting thing to me is I never started out um, wanting to write a book. That was the last thing I had in my mind. I left uh, TELUS at that time in 2002, and I basically spent um, three or four years just traveling because, as you know, uh, in an executive position of a major corporation, you don't get a whole, whole lot of of downtime. So I just wasted myself away. And I recall this one day when I got back, my wife and I were uh, lying around the pool and at the Mirage in Las Vegas and it was September. And she turned to me and she said, well, you know, boating season's over because by then we were boating. We boated for 17 years. She says, now what are you going to do? And I thought, okay, I think I understand where she's coming from. And I said, well, what do you, what do you suggest? She said, well, you know, when you were when you had your career, you really loved going out talking to people and just getting them excited about customer service and marketing and strategy and all that stuff. Why don't you do that? So I thought, wow, okay, I did. Um, and I talked to a lot of MBAs in those days. And so I sat down and I the biggest concern I had was, will I be able to recall the content of my stuff? So I sat down in front of a computer and I banged out about 500 PowerPoint slides. And I said, okay, it's still there. So what I did 
is it wasn't be different or be dead then. It was just, I don't know what I called it, but it was just like Roy talking about how to improve your business, that kind of stuff, kind of generic. And a part of that was differentiation. And the piece that people loved, because I did work for the chambers throughout BC and everything else, I just went out and I did it for nothing, just my thing. And people really liked the work. They liked it because of what you just said. It's not that the ideas are revolutionary. In fact, what makes them attractive is they're not. They're practical and they have a huge emotional component to them. When I start talking about you got to serve customers, not service them, you know, that's got a whole lot behind it. Anyways, I went out and started doing these things and gradually got this notion of be different or be dead sort of came out of it. And I had a chapter uh, or a section of the seminars called that, and that's what people loved. They loved that whole be different or be dead spin on it. And so what I did is I took all the content and put it relative to be different or be dead. And, uh, and it was the suggestion of people who came to the seminars to write a book that actually was the genesis of writing the book. And people said, why don't you do this? So I was sitting in Maui and I started it and it took me 18 months um, to nail it and uh, published it. And what a great experience, I tell you, super experience. But that's how the thing started. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a kind of like a business practitioner who is looking for ways to spread my word. One way is the written format the electronic format, maybe the audio format, and the physical format, which is in this case is the book. And by the way, I give these things away at seminars, etc. It's not I'm not in the in the business of making money on the book. First of all, it's really hard to do, <laughs> and secondly, it it completely misses the point. I want to create a change out there. I want people to start asking different questions. It's not about who should we copy. In which case, I've written several blogs around the notion of benchmarking sucks, and it does. It's not about that. It's about asking the question, how can we be different? How can we be special? How can we be, as, as, as Tom Peters says, gasp-worthy? What a great word, huh? <laughs> I mean, that awesome. sort of stuff. Those are the strategic concepts that I think are relevant today because business generally is mediocre in the sense that they copy, they flog products, they, they compete on price, all of which is completely boring and unimaginative. And it doesn't make them special. Well, absolutely. And, and I think a lot of that goes down to, and it is changing, uh, people, they'll develop a product, then they'll introduce it to the marketplace. Say, hey, check out this product. You should buy it. And the market doesn't care. It's this thing that you should talk to the marketplace, find out what they're frustrated with, find out what they need and are desperately asking for, and then produce that. And then your marketing is all it is, is information. It's like, hey, by the way, remember this problem? Here's the solution. Go have fun. Yeah, there's there's several several layers to the whole marketing thing. And I talk about me marketing uh, in the sense that um, mass markets don't exist because they're premised on the fact that everybody's the same. Well, everybody isn't the same, everybody's different. The challenge for marketing is to find out the differences and create opportunities around the differences as opposed to the similarities. You know, I mean, again, I, I go back to market segmentation 101. What's the objective? Well, the objective is to create, is to determine uh, heterogeneous market segments. I say, no, that's not what you want to do. You want to find, or sorry, homogenous. You want to find heter heterogeneous 
small segments of remarkable of remarkable consumers, right, and really get to know them and then create value for them. It's not about products. The product is a manifestation of technology. What this is, world is all about, and people tell you they want value. They don't want iron flogged at them, you know. And so, trying to get the marketers out of product management into value management is hugely important and extremely difficult because there's so much inertia there, you know. You, well, you also have to be a much more. You have to be a different style of uh, salesperson or marketer uh, to be able to do that if you're selling on feature uh back in the day oh it's stereo or it's quadraphonic or it's this and that like who cares but the sales guys it was really easy to train people at well you say it does this and it's got dolby and da 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 but if you go in and you have a salesman that uh communicates on emotional levels and on story levels and say oh let me tell you the story i had this baby out the other day and we put it on and we were playing this jazz it blew these people away they were so cool we were drinking this amazing red wine blah 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 you're describing a life scenario that everybody wants to have this piece of equipment made that possible that's a different way of selling well i mean i agree with you and as far as i'm concerned I mean, the notion of selling is kind of like obsolete anyways, for the very reasons that we're talking about. It's really serving people and, and if you want, trying to figure out how to create experiences around their life. Like salespeople, unfortunately, aren't comped to do what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're comped and salespeople, and I know these guys, right? They are absolutely the most fired up, driven group and if you don't get the compensation right, all you do is get huge dysfunction. And so like uh, uh, one of my most favorite directors of sales, um, uh, he was the most amazing guy. He, uh, he was my warrior, okay? I could send him in, I could, say to, I could say to him, take that hill. And he would take the hill, scorch the earth, you know, blow it away. But if I said to him, which hill do you wanna take? He would, he would have a huge problem with that, okay? So if you don't – and, of course, the compensation plan made, made him even more remarkable. So unfortunately, we today in, in organizations are not comping sales to be relationship builders. We're not comping them to deliver a remarkable experiences. We're, we're comping them to sell products in the next quarter. Well, yeah, or, at, or sooner. Or, yeah, you throw that in front of a sales guy, I can tell you, they don't care about relationships. They won't do anything like that because that's not what they're getting paid for. So part of this thing for me is a leadership issue. Leadership and organizations today are really promulgating stuff from the past, generally speaking. And I know I'm being a bit of a disservice to some, and not everybody's like this. But i got to tell you, the majority are. They really are. They're practicing basic management style leadership as opposed to servant leadership stuff and with with the kind of dimensions that you and I are just discussing. I mean, oh my God, the notion of comping somebody on having a customer tell that, tell the salesperson that they created a dazzling experience. I mean, how soft is that? And people look at that and go, what? And I keep saying, no, 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 that's not soft. It's hard because that's what people buy on. Surely anything that's that people that motivates people to buy has got to be hard, right? Yeah, I think the thing is though that you know you you're looking at that and people just can't fathom it and 
you know, a lot of times when I'm talking and coaching people that can't afford a salesperson, they say, God, I've only had a salesperson. No, you don't need a salesperson. You need an educator. And that's what you're doing already. When you go to a networking group, you discuss things with people and you give them solutions. Now, sometimes the solution isn't your product, but it doesn't matter because then you're targeted as that's the solution person. And eventually you'll be able to give them advice that has direct correlation with your bottom line. Yeah, you know, and what you basically described is what I call in the book, lose a sale but save the customer. You know, I mean, salespeople aren't comped to give business away. And the irony is they never had it. (laughs) (laughs) And so so they elicit or they exhibit this behavior that just just absolutely annoys the customer because, as you say, they 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 are incapable of creating a solution for them. So they walk away very frustrated. Uh, We got miles to go here, man. I mean, miles to go. The stuff that that I'm talking about is not revolutionary. Yeah, well, I think the revolutionary part is when you not only get one company, but you get enough companies doing it that it becomes a competitive edge and people saying, well, we have to do it this way. Like, you have to have more women in the C-suite. If you don't, you can't compete globally. That's just that's just a fact of life. If you want your company to survive over the next five or ten years, you got to seriously looking at getting between twenty or twenty five percent of your working force female. That's a huge thing for a company to get its head over. But at least it's got to the tipping point that guys can go into the boardroom and say, "Look, if we don't do this, we're not going to be in business in three years." So guess what? We're going to do it. And if we can do it with this theory as well, I think it would revolutionize the way people would consume product. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, as I go about my my passion and my my kind of project here, because it's definitely not a career. Uh, I'm not looking for a second career. Um, but the people who are really willing and open to be different or be dead are generally female. They're small to medium sized businesses. Large business think they know the solution to everything and they have the resources to apply and therefore they're less willing to kind of be open and listen, even though, and this is the irony, even though it was a large organization that helped me create this by virtue of what I did in it, right? And so to your point, women, I think, are, are kind of like the future lifeblood. I hope uh, that, that they're more successful um, getting past this, this glass ceiling because if ever there was a, a, a group of folks who understand how to serve people and how to take care of people, all these strategic concepts, it's women. And I say that with the utmost admiration because quite frankly, in, in the last, I would say, 10 years of my career, I, I basically ended up hiring more women than men. And for a simple reason, they really got the people stuff. They got it. They didn't have to teach them. They just got it. And that's what we need in, in the frontline organizations. That's what we need in leadership. We need leaders walking around the organization say, saying, how can I help rather than do this? Huge way to go. Yep. But, and, and I think the people, and I don't want to just peg women that can do this. I think it's people that are generally more conscious of the day-to-day reality that they live in. And that may sound a little bit airy-fairy, but really it's people that are in the moment are much better at empathizing with the person that's struggling and say, you know, do this, do this, do this, like you said, or sitting down and say, what's the problem? That's empathy. 
that's a person being conscious when they walk into a room, somebody's not happy here. Oh, that guy obviously is not happy with his day. What's causing it? Did he have a bad weekend? Is there an emotional problem? Or is it he's just frustrated with his job? Hey, I'm, I'm just saying that the people who naturally get that are women. Oh, absolutely. And absolutely. So, yeah. so for me, I mean, I look around and see how many, how many CEOs spend 50% of their time with the frontline organization. Very few. So where do you get, you know, where's the pulse of, of the organization to be able to do what you and I have just been talking about? It's sitting in the bowels of the organization, in the trenches, on the coal face where customers meet company. And unfortunately, most leaders don't go there. They just don't go there. I was there all the time. And for one simple reason, it was fun. It was a blast. And they once they trust you, they tell you everything. So if you're looking for ways to improve, that's how to get there. I used to have what I call regular bear pit sessions. There's a These are Roy's bear pit sessions. They were once every two weeks. I just go into an organization. It could be customer service. It could be a call center. It could be operator services. It could be credit services. It could be marketing sales. doesn't matter. Get 10 or 12 people together and just say, okay, give it to me. What's going on? I got to tell you. Not only did I learn a lot, and th- thankfully that they trusted me enough to, to actually share with me because there was it was safe for them. I made it safe for them. And I didn't have an entourage, which is me, but it, it allowed me to do some things that, that opened up these ideas. You know, like, for example, uh, one of the biggest sources of be different or be dead is what I call dumb rules. A dumb rule is a rule or a policy or a procedure in an organization that has been implemented and established in the past and has no useful purpose today other than to completely piss off customers. And they exist in every organization. So what I would do is I had dumb rules committees all over the place and I empowered them to, to you know, create lists of, of rules and these were frontline people Tell me the rules and policies and procedures that don't make any sense. And then we would go about as a leadership team to change those things. Well, it was revolutionary. I mean, all you got to do is ask a frontliner, you know, what are we doing that really prevents you from doing their job? And they'll tell you. But but those those ideas that in and of themselves are huge strategic issues. Some people just call them operations. Well, they're not. They're huge strategic issues only can be learned when you're in the face of the front line. You, you just don't get it anywhere else. So unfortunately, there's not enough leaders in the pits. Yeah, they're relying on uh, a lot of times what they're doing is they're getting their stats or they're, they're digging into um, big data and they're really not getting a true reading of what's going on. And, and I've always been a component of if you're going to have a customer service department or a sales department, you've got to have customer service people mentality in that department. If you have a crisis situation, that's an opportunity for you to actually win back and make a super customer because all they're doing is somebody's that frustrated and is stirring up a bunch of problems. They're just frustrated, and that's the only way that they can get through the organization. So if you have an organization that is uh, able to see that coming and disarm it earlier, you're going to have way more satisfied people. Well, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. The other part of – and I talk a lot about service recovery in my, in my work, which is like kind of fix it and surprise people with what they don't expect – 
it's not about meeting their expectations. They just want you to fix it. So you fix it fast and blow them away by doing something they don't expect. It, it, it's a, it is absolutely the case that, that if you have successful service recoveries, you have a loyal, more loyal base than if you never made the mistake at all. Interesting, because, you know, that in which case I get all sorts of wonderful suggestions. Well, Roy, let's just go out there and make some strategic errors, recover well, and we'll build loyalty. And I keep saying, you know what? I think we're going to make a few. <laughs> I don't <laughs> yeah. think we've got to manufacture them. Ah. <laughs> uh, that they're thinking, but, you know, but that's such a classic reaction in that scenario. It's like, oh, great. So how can we artificially manipulate the situation? You say, no, you don't have to. You just got to be ready for it, guys. And you're not. You, you don't have any backup plan. What's I mean, organizations, they don't even have um, strategic plans for when things are going to hit the fan. They're not thinking on that level, and they should be. It's like, what's going to be happening in five years? What happens if the economy crashes in five years, guys? What do you have? Oh, we may do this because that's what we did last time. Well, why don't you have 57 ideas all ready to go, and whichever one comes closest to solving the solution in five years, that's when you go for it. But at least you've got it all organized and figured out. Yeah, I mean, part of part of my... Uh my issue too is like I, I'm just simply not a believer in the five-year plan because I just think it's totally useless. I mean, if you want to give the banker some money, it's fine. You know, you, you extrapolate the numbers. But if you want something to execute, I Bob, I've never seen the fifth year ever show up. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So w- what I try and get people to think about is more because I'm such an execution guy, which is a big failing in business today. I mean, having having a plan is one thing and a statement of direction. But actually being able to successfully execute it is a completely different thing. And I find that it's way out of whack. I find that most organizations spend 80% of their time on the figuring out what the direction should be and 20% on execution. And it's completely wrong, okay, because results don't exist in the plan. They exist in the execution of the plan. So what I had to do, and it's in the book, is I had to create this strategic game plan process because it's the only way that it would allow me to survive. And it's based around a really simple precept that says, you know, if you can answer three questions, you've got your strategic game plan. And part part of the reason for the 24 months is because it's close enough in that people are gonna worry about it. Nobody worries about the fifth year of a five year plan. Trust me, never happens. Because what you do is you get the hockey stick that says, well, okay, revenues are going to be stable for 24 months. And then they're going to start to to kick up in the latter part of the plan. Never happens. Never happens. In fact, if you can't successfully get through the first 24 months, the fifth year, I guarantee you won't show up. And so I try and get people, look at, we can build a strategic game plan in two days. And I do this with clients. In fact, I'm doing one tomorrow. And it starts out saying, how big do you want to be? Who do you want to serve and how are you going to compete and win? Simple three, three uh, statements, three questions. You answer them, then you get going. And then you, what you do is you plan on the run, which is my way of saying you learn from execution and you iterate and adjust as you go. And eventually you'll get to the right fifth year that you never could have imagined five years ago because you simply didn't have enough information, Right. And it, this is amazing. You talk, you, you just kind of give me one of these questions to, 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 to think about for the interview. And it was like, you know, what, what, are, what are the one or two things from the uh, ideas from the book that you liked? I mean, one huge one that, that people just 
it's not me that I like, that people just love is this whole notion of strategic game planning because it's a game plan because it's it's a planning process built to execute. Uh, people really jumped on that because it's it's simple and it's it's a fun experience and they get something that we review every quarter. Um, and I got to tell you, they get really good results. So they're really excited about that. Hmm. Well, and it also sounds very much like uh, the pivot strategy that's very popular right now is is don't uh, build a business plan and try and perfect it. Just get it figured out, move forward, and as things crumble in front of you, come up with solutions to move forward. And that's, I mean, it drives me crazy. It's like, how long have you been working on the business plan? 18 months as well. Okay, well, that's like, you know, 16 months too long. Yeah, exactly right. Well, the other part that I find really quite quite um, uh, humorous actually is the condition of these strategic planning documents. You know, they look like they've been ironed and they sit on the credenza in all its splendor. And I keep saying, where's the blood stains? I want to see the paper cuts. I want to see the, the, the ragged edges of the paper. I, I want to see coffee stains that shows that, that the document itself is being looked upon as a repository of learning and not just a statement of direction. I because mean, to me, you got to learn from this stuff. It's, you, you just have to because, you know, um, eventually you'll find your way. I, I wrote this rather interesting blog. I got a lot of sorts of weird suggestions from it. It was called Heading West or Heading Slightly West is a Valid Strategy. And it is because, you know, you get going and you discover yourself along the way um, in terms of, uh, as you say, responding to things that you haven't you didn't foresee, uh, but more importantly, just responding to the capability of you to execute in your organization. And every organization has a different kind of ex execution uh, factor, if you want to call it that. Uh, and they just need to stay in touch with that all along the way. Now, let's dig into the book a little bit. I want to talk about the strategy of consuming this content. Um, can somebody that has the book jump into any section or should they read the beginning first and then jump around or should they read it cover to cover? Um, the, the, the basic idea behind it was that, that they could pick it up and, um, and, and basically say, okay, I got a marketing issue, whatever, go straight to marketing. Um, so you can do that. There are standalone modules in that respect. Uh, what I find what some of the people are doing, some readers, is there's a, there's a Be Different quiz, uh, actually, that I've got in the book and on my website. And actually, I recommend people go take the quiz because it goes through each of the sections. And the one on the, 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 one, the, the quiz on the website's been updated, so it's, it's a more current version to use. And if you go through the quiz, it has questions in strategy, marketing, sales, and serving customers. And you get to sort of self-rate your own capabilities. How well do you think uh, you are uh, adopting or, or, or exhibiting these be different or be dead practices? And obviously the lowest score, you want to look at that and say, okay, there's a good place to start. So what you could do is do the quiz first and then go into the book. But it's, it's made to be uh, kind of like a guide and you can go in and out, hopefully, as, as things come up during your day or during your year. Uh, what do you think of the idea of, you know, you've read several sections in the book. Um, can you adapt sections into uh, other strategies within the company? 
Oh yeah. I mean, I, if, 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 if you want a kind of a general approach to get started, I would start in the, in the strategic section, which talks about the game plan, because part of that is, is, uh, at the end of the day, uh, once you've had your, your, your game plan statement created, uh, you want to look at specific objectives. How are you going to breathe life into that game plan? And that kind of takes you into the areas of marketing, sales and service, et cetera. Um, uh, and so it's useful for people to have a strategic context before they jump into the tactics anyways. So from that point of view, that section would be, uh, I think, quite productive for people. Uh, you know, you, you've, and we've kind of touched on this a little bit. I'm, I'm curious, uh, you know, you, you're putting this whole book together, you're focusing, you've got like tremendous experience behind you. But for you, what was your aha moment? The, something that you knew was a reality, but really crystallized when you put the book together? I think it was around this notion of what I called uh, the only statement. Um, when people have to craft a statement of their competitive advantage, generally, it's it's filled with what I would call helium uh, aspirational statements. You know, like uh, our, our competitive advantage is we are the biggest blah, 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 blah in North America. And they think the problem with that is it's aspirational and you can't execute around an aspiration. You just can't do it. And what, what was an aha moment for me was my response to uh, creating a competitive claim has always been, you don't want merely to be the best of the best. You want to be the only one that does what you do. It's black or white. It's binary. It's not analog. Okay. It, 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 it's not full of, of, of comparatives or, or, or superlatives. It's either black or white. And so I created this concept called the only statement that says we are the only ones that, and it's, it's in the book. It turned out to be aha because of its simplicity and it gets right at the issue, right at the issue. And of, of saying, I mean, if you're not stand out in something, you better create it, dude. Yeah. You're in a lot of trouble. And so how people resonated or how that idea resonated with people was aha for me and said, wow, okay, maybe I've got one element here that I can really pump up and, and really get people excited about. And every time I do a, a strategic game planning process, they have lots of fun. And it's, but it's frustrating. It's hard to create because generally speaking, there are very few people that are truly unique at something. It's more like they're kind of like 70 to 80% there. And I'm saying, okay, that's fine. Let's go with that because I want you to execute around it. Let's go with that and let's build the capabilities over time. So that was definitely a ha ha. I mentioned the, um, the dumb rules thing. It is, <laughs> it is really, it is really taken off as well. I have to tell you, people love the idea because, because they relate to dumb rules, right? <laughs> uh, wh one other one, if I could say, Bob, the third one would be my, my, my notion around cut the crap. Now, if you read the book, the crap is all about stuff that is really, you know, in the way of getting stuff done. Again, it's an executional thing. People love that idea. Cut the crap. That really gets to it. I've been criticized. Oh, Roy, you should call it non-strategic. <laughs> and I say, no, it's crap. Those three points, um, aha moments for you, and I'm sure for many people that are listening to the show, are becoming their aha moments. I think that's really 
the toughest thing for many organizations, especially when they're young and, and they're they're trying to grow, is having a, a little bit of a reality check about how good they really are. That you know, you kind of get this delusional headspace. It's like oh, we're going to start the, I'm going to start a restaurant, and oh, if I fill the restaurant three times, then I'm going to make this much money. And oh yeah, now we can afford this rent. That's a ridiculous way of thinking because how long is it going to take? to fill that restaurant a year, six months, they don't think on that level. And and I think that's why 90% or 95% of small businesses fail in their first year and they never get a chance to become a medium-sized business It's because their aspirations are completely out of whack with reality. Yeah, and, and you just, the, the, the key word there is they start out with an aspiration. Most, most particularly new businesses are so tactically driven I think in many respects, it explains why, you know, 30% of them are done within 24 months. Look at, if you don't have strategic context and it literally starts out with what are your growth targets over the next 24 months? Let me give you an example. If I, if I decide in my new restaurant that I want to, I want to be at a million dollars, a top line revenue in 24 months, that will require a completely different strategy than if I said, uh, I want 250,000. One's order of magnitude different. Why, why, why are the strategies implied by those numbers different? Well, because they have different risk and the scale is so different. Most businesses don't start out with the numbers, Bob. They start out with what they think is a good thing to do and then they work the numbers at the very end. Well, let me tell you, it's not the right way to do it. The be different approach, if you want to think about it, is the numbers drives everything. So, okay, now you want a million dollars. Next question is, where are you going to get it? Who are you going to you choose to serve? Now's the time when you start to define those customer groups that have the latent potential to get you to a million in 24 months. The last question is, how are we going to compete and win in those segments that we've just identified? And that really causes you to start thinking about your only statement. And so if I'm going to go at the Norwegian community in – uh, South Vancouver, because I think that they can take me to a million. My next question is, who am I competing with to get those guys into my restaurant? And how can I separate myself from the herd of them? That's the sort of strategic process that I try and encourage. And it gets people to execution fast and starts to get rid of this. I'm driven by tactics because there's just way too much of that going on. I mean, I've had some clients go broke in 24 months because it was so cool to chase the technology. The big shiny piece of technology or the big shiny piece of equipment syndrome, which is a big killer because that's the toy. And you've got, as a business person, you're not in the process of buying new toys. You're in the process of uh, building a plan that in the future may need a toy. Mm -hmm. But when you finally get to that process, you're not buying a toy, you're buying an asset and there's no emotional uh, connection to it. And that's a big learning for, for many entrepreneurs that it's not a game. Huge. You know, all the fun. Sorry, guys. Buying a million dollar piece of equipment may seem like something sexy to do or traveling around the world in a plane may seem really cool. But at the end of the day, after doing it for five years or negotiating for the money to get that piece of equipment, it's not a pleasant experience. Well, you know, another another example of that on a, on a much different level is is social media. I mean, the vogue thing now is everybody, every organization has got to be in social media. Well, that's not true. 
But the part of the problem is if you have a strategic game plan and a context that suggests that social media is a good tool to communicate with your target group, then fine. But if it's not, then you go elsewhere. It's like everybody's running at social media, just like they're running it digital or running at this and that in hopes that, you know, you know, it's, it's a greenfield. Well, unfortunately, there's a lot of collateral damage along the road from people that actually have followed those tactics. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of that, too, is it goes back to what is your strategy? What is your goal? And, and then you say, well, what are we going to communicate on social media if we decide? And, and OK, so do you have a core value that's going to make you uh, stand out? Because if you don't, what's social media going to do for you? Well, if you don't have an only statement, you're constantly fighting the herd. And, you know, the unfortunate thing with that is it always gravitates down to price because value isn't a consideration. It always goes commodity and it always goes to price. And, and these businesses compete on price, which is not sustainable, and they're dead. It always happens. But you know what's interesting, though, too, is uh, a lot of times there's nothing wrong with bringing a competitive price, not the cheapest, not the most expensive, but a competitive price around an incredible idea that kind of breaks the mold in your industry. And that, I think, has, has merit. Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a fan of, of pricing up. Uh, I'm a fan of pricing to value, in which case cost just determines your contribution margin. So if I've got a, a, a product or I've got an offering of, of huge value, I think the marketing job is to price that as high as you can, right, it, within a range to make sure that you attract the kind of customers that you want and not to say, okay, well, it costs me 30 bucks, therefore I should get a 15% margin and price it accordingly. And there's too much of that going on. If you can get 100 for it, get 100 for it. Absolutely get 100 for it, but make sure that it's based on the value components you're supplying, right? And, and, and as opposed to, you know, any other factor. And I think that also rings true today because things evolve so incredibly quickly. Like 30, 40 years ago, you could do something and you maybe had five years to dominate that market. If you get six months before somebody uh, basically reiterates what you've done, copies it or whatever, um, you're lucky. So, yeah, I mean, bring it up at, at a relatively... A robust price at the beginning makes sense because you're going to cash in as much as possible. But as the um, market evolves and people start copying you, that's a good time to, you could be more competitive on price. But at the same time, you should be introducing another product that dominates. You got to keep on doing it. You, you got to obsolete yourself. But it also shows, you know, I mean, it, it's really hard. It's harder for, for competitors to compete with you on value dimensions. Right. Because a lot of times it's based on the assets of the business, the human resources of the business, really hard to replicate that stuff. So my experience has been the time horizon. If you're a pure value competitor, uh, the time horizon that you can actually, quote, get away with that is probably longer than you think. Right. It's as long as it's not flogging features and benefits and stuff that everybody else is doing. But what you wrap around that typically has, you know, it'll surprise you in terms of longevity. And a, a classic example of that is a company in the States called Zappos. I mean, how, how simple is delivering happiness? And they figured out how to do it. And people say to me, well, yeah, but that'll never be sustainable. Oh, yeah? Okay, Tony Shea sold a business to Amazon for $1 billion. Are you telling me there's no economic value in happiness? Because that's the culture that they have. 
And that's what they basically built the business around. I mean, to me, that's the ultimate expression of value. If you can, if you can make some, somebody happy by what you do and transact that way, wow. I mean, you're here for a long time. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and a lot of times, you know, when I'm working with solopreneurs, the thing that makes them special is them. So they should brand under themselves, especially if it's something that's oversaturated. Let's say the, the, the absolutely right, absolutely right, Bob. So I wanted to ask people listening in the audience, what should they do today to work towards this approach? What's like because it always starts with one step. Yeah, look at it's an excellent question. Thank you for that. Look at the people need strategic context. You need to have a game plan to to know generally speaking, where you're going and and how you're performing to get there. And so I really advocate, and, and if a client gets a hold of me and says, Roy, and this always happens, could you come in and help me with social media? My answer is no, I won't, because I don't know the context in which we're going to judge whether your social media uh, tools make any sense. So I typically try and get them up to cone and say, we really need to do a strategic game plan process. It's a day and a half. If you can't give me a day and a half, then I can't give you anything. And so that's the place to start. Get the con- get the context done. It involves in that session uh, building an only statement, which is really important. So it's not just the strategic context itself. It's also working on your, your unique competitive claim, which is essential for you to get going. So if you're a business out there and you, you're, you're operating now, take a step back. Take a step back and refresh yourself, right? It, it, you, may, you may find out that the strategy that you're on is indeed where you should be, which is good, but there'll still be some learnings. I think you'll probably get, get some benefit out of creating an only statement in any event. But more importantly, you're, you're taking a look at the business and you're not working in it, you're working on it. And that's really, really important, particularly for SMBs these days to find the time to do it. So work on the strategic game plan, get your only statement, get a few key things, critical things you need to execute in the next while and just get going. Yeah, I love that, just get going. You know, you don't really know what you need to do until you're going and then what happens like you said, you get going and then every day you're, oh, I've got this other crisis and customer service making sure everybody's happy, blah, blah, blah. And you forget to step away and look at the big picture. And that's, it's so yeah. easy to get stuck in the day to day, putting out the fires, thinking you're dealing with crises. All you're doing is you may be solving a crisis today, but you're creating two crises in a week and a half. Well, that's right. And you know, it's, it's awful hard as a business leader, particularly in the small end where you're basically owner, operator, CEO, you're doing it all. It's so hard to intervene on yourself. And, and that's really what you have to do. You got to intervene and say, well, like, for example, um, in a couple of weeks, I'm I'm sitting down with this, this friend of mine who's a psychologist and she's got a practice. And I talked to her on vacation and she said, oh, and this is cl- typically how it comes out. Oh, I just don't have the. I know I need to work on my business, but. I just don't have the time, Roy. What do you suggest? Well, at least she asked. And so we're going to do this kind of thing. And when I talked to her about what's involved, she just went, yeah, yeah, I, that's what I have to do. But how am I going to find the time to do it? And I said, really? Are you telling me you can't give me a day and a half? 
is that what you're telling me? <laughs> and so you, you actually beat them up into, <laughs> into admitting that they can give you a day and a half. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's, it's small steps. And there's lots of books out there that, like, you know, how to, how to make time. And really, all it, how you make time is by stopping doing things and stepping back and organizing yourself, which will create a little bit more time. And then you don't squander that time. You take that extra time and you implement it to try and give yourself more time and more time and more time. And a lot of it's about um, making proper decisions, not being busy for busyness sake. I mean, if you're a smart business person, you should be able to go in a Monday morning, work like a lunatic for four and a half hours, and you're done for two or three days. The rest is just touching bases with people, making sure that you're managing at that point. And you cannot manage unless you have a strategic plan. I mean, that's just the, what do I need to get done this week so something else is going to happen next week. And that means you work incredibly focused. Uh, you answer diligently all emails that will move your plan forward. There's all these tricks there. And for sure, you can create more time for yourself. But I think people are just using the excuse that they have no time as a crutch so they don't have to worry about making some tough decisions. Well, exactly. And the other thing for me is they don't want to. They don't want to do anything different. They're, they're captured in, this, in, the, in the heat of the moment, and it's familiar. The panic is familiar. The stress is familiar, right? Having to take a step back and re-architect what you should be doing is a risk for a lot of people. And, and it's, for whatever reason... Uh, not something that they find particularly pleasing. And that's one of the, the challenges that I had is how do I build this day and a half to two day thing into a delightful experience so that people not only get where they need to get to, they have fun when they do it, right? Generally speaking too, people are, they just have too much. I mean, I'm not a fan of a to-do list. I'm not a fan of brainstorming. I'm not a fan of any of that stuff because to your point earlier, it forces people to not focus. I mean, if you can't, in my view, if you can't define three or four critical things you need to do to to basically move your strategy 80% or contribute 80% to the strategy, then you don't understand your strategy. I mean, I used to have fun with people walking into my office with with a to-do list or a, or a project list of 15 projects. I'd throw them out of my office. So you clearly don't under, understand the strategy if you're trying to do 15 things. I want you to come back with three or four things that, that will explain 80% of what you can contribute to the strategy. Give me those. And I want you to do them really well. Well, they came back with four or five. That's okay. But they got the point. So we've been encouraged to, 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 um, uh, to, to, to be, you know, uh, so, sort of produce so, so much volume. That in a, in a lot of respects, it comes back and, and it bites us because we use that then as a, in some cases, valid reason for saying we can't take on anything new. No. And the other part is cutting the crap. If you can get rid of the crap in your organization or in your personal life, it really isn't making a contribution to where to the end state you're trying to achieve. If you can do that, you will open up bandwidth to new, new things. It's not about adding resources or anything like that. It's getting rid of the stuff, the grunge, the crap in the organization that's preventing you from moving forward on your new stated direction. And that's a real fun part of this strategic game planning process, Bob, because we get the leadership team in that room to say, are you kidding me? Let's define three things, three crap items 
that is that are not making a contribution that we could get rid of. And I got to tell you, do they have fun with that? It's fun. It's almost therapeutic. It's definitely therapeutic because it gives them an actionable uh, thing to do. And I think a lot of people are stuck and can't move forward because they're not moving. Yeah, got to keep your feet moving. Absolutely. Hey, uh, before we go, where should people go if they want to learn more? They've read your book. Uh, you, you've mentioned blog posts before. Where should they go for that type of stuff? So my, thank you for that. So my website is uh, bedifferentorbedead.com. And um, on the website, there are there are pages that kind of talk about this stuff. I do have a blog page. And, and please, if, if you're interested, subscribe to my blog. I blog once a week. And uh, you can go in and check out the blog posts that I've got up there. I've got like five years of them. And, and I use the blog, Bob, as a kind of a way to talk about my content. And so, you know, every time something hits me at, 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 in a certain way and I write a post on it. So it comes at the content in different ways. So that's maybe something that people might find uh, enjoyable. Uh, plus, I got a page to talk about uh, my books. And so... On, on the, that page is Be Different or Be Dead, the book that you and I are talking about right now. But there's also five ebooks. One is called, a, my latest one is called A Weekly Calendar for Leaders, where I try and explain what leaders should consider doing on a weekly basis to promulgate um, you know, healthy servant leadership. There's a book called Marketing in the Storm, which talks about marketing from a Be Different point of view. This is the one that people are having fun with. The next one is called Execute First, Plan Second. <laughs> it's just my way of saying, come on, get it just about right and execute it flawlessly. And then there's this one we, I mentioned earlier to you uh, about career planning. It's called Be Different You, how to stand out and power up your career. And mm-hmm. the last one is Six Acts of Leadership. So you can see there's a lot in there about leadership and execution, about marketing and sales and and they're bite-sized chunks and, and they're ebooks, so they're cheap and hopefully uh, uh, people will enjoy them. Awesome. Hey, we've been chatting with Roy today and man, talk about a guy on fire. What an incredible book. And as he just mentioned, lots and lots of great other content too. Check out Be Different or Be Dead, your business survival guide. And quite frankly, after listening to this, it definitely is a way to survive in business. Roy, thanks for being on the show. You're very welcome, Bob. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that show and do me a favor and tweet about it. Follow us on Facebook if you haven't done that already. We really appreciate it. See you next week.